Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we got some more information on the Omicron variant from the first large real-world study in South Africa. We saw protection from hospitalization fall to 70%, and against infection, it fell to 33%. This study pitted the new variant against two shots of Pfizer, which has been widely used in the area. So far, it seems that Omicron may be more transmissible, but cause milder infections. For more on all this, we'll speak to Denise Rowland, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. A large private health insurer in South Africa looked at um, a couple of hundred thousand cases of COVID-19 since September and compared how vaccines protected people against infection or hospitalization during the Delta period, so September and October, and how well it was doing in the Omicron period, basically the kind of the first uh, sort of three weeks between mid-November to early December. Um, what they found was that folks who were double vaccinated with the Pfizer-BioNTech shot um, were 33% um, protected from infection, and that's versus um, an 80% protection and during the Delta wave. Um, they also looked at protection from hospitalization. Um, that also fell. Um, so it fell from 93% during the Delta period to 70% during the Omicron wave. Um, so it's not great news on either front, but I guess the good news is that there's still okay protection against hospitalization. And the big bottom line is that it does seem to be more transmissible. I mean, obviously, that's why people are putting out the calls for the booster shots. I think Pfizer last week said something about, uh, you know, getting that booster shot does provide more protection, at least against infection. But we're seeing that the antibodies aren't holding up as well against the Omicron variant. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, the immune system, it's it's kind of two layers of protection. So you kind of got the front line, which are the antibodies that circulate in your blood. Um, how well they work against the Omicron variant determines whether or not it can like gain a foothold in the body. Um, if it gets through that front line, which it, the Omicron variant appears to do so quite a bit, you have this, you know, next layer, which is your um, T cells, and they, you know, hunt down cells that the virus is infected, and they kill them to stop your body kind of being a virus-making machine. Um, so, I think you're seeing basically different effects on these two different layers of immunity. Well, that's what it appears to be anyway. So the studies that we had last week out of Pfizer were looking just at that frontline defense. They were measuring how the antibodies in the blood coped with the Omicron variant. Um, and they found that a booster restored antibody levels so that they could fight the Omicron variant. Those studies from last week didn't look at severe disease because mm. it's the um, the next level of immunity, which is more like T cells that protect against severe disease. Right. So the reason this um, South African study is 
interesting and important is that it's the first big real world study to give us a clue about severe disease as well as protected from infection. You know, we're looking at the vaccines through this study. They also, the researchers also found that the Omicron variant did erode the protective uh, effect of prior infection also, you know, a lot more transmissible. If you've had COVID, if you've had the vaccine, there's a good chance you can, you can get this new uh, variant. The other good stuff that we're seeing, though, is that it does seem to be milder cases. We're seeing that in a, in a lot of instances. Some of the symptoms we see is a you know scratchy throat, a nasal congestion, cough, aches and pains. I think we've seen uh, lower back pain is something a lot of people are saying, but it goes away pretty quickly by most accounts. Yeah, now that data would still be anecdotal. Um, even, you know, the Discovery Health study, they talked about this too, but they cautioned that this is very early days and you, you, we, they can't really draw any firm conclusions from that yet. The main reason is that it takes time for the, you know, when you get a covid a 19 infection you'll feel rough for a while and then you can take a turn for the worst so there might we've only had this virus in our midst for three weeks or right. three to four weeks so there's sort of still time for it to show that it can be as severe as earlier variants but you know it might not be um you know there's a chance it isn't as well i think the caution would be that it's too soon for us to say that yet. Um, the other point that scientists make is that even if it is milder, being more transmissible could make it more dangerous overall. So a milder but more contagious virus could do more damage than a harsher but less transmissible virus just through <laughs> right. sheer case numbers. So exactly. say, you know, a certain percentage of cases go on to become severe while a bigger number of cases full stop means more severe cases. So there's sort of a double-edged caution there on the this clue that it might be milder. Number one, it might not be. Number two, even if it is, it can still do an awful lot of damage. Denise Rowland, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This past week, we also saw former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows be held in contempt of Congress. We're learning more about what was happening with President Trump's inner circle during the January 6th Capitol riots. This is all coming through text messages that Mark Meadows provided. And what we saw was President Trump's son, Fox News personalities, and even lawmakers plead with Meadows to convince Trump to do something to stop the storming of the Capitol. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter at Politico. Yeah, it seems like Meadows was the central point of contact or clearinghouse for people trying to reach uh, President Trump on January 6th and to get him to do something to stop the violence. I mean, not only uh, were there sort of uh, political supporters of the president, there were also a number of uh, prominent uh, Fox News personalities, uh, several members of Congress, and at least one of the president's own family members. In fact, his son, Don Jr., uh, went through Meadows trying to get a message to his father uh, saying that he's got to condemn this blank ASAP. This Capitol Police tweet is not enough. That's what Don Jr. said in a, a message, a text message to Meadows. Uh, the Capitol Police tweet refers, I think, to the first kind of tepid response that President Trump made uh, once violence broke out at the Capitol. 
Yeah, House investigators have been throwing the number out there, 187 minutes. So I guess from the point where either things started or where Meadows started receiving texts, the big question is, obviously, were messages being relayed to the president? Were they meeting? Were they planning? What were they trying to do during that time are part of the big questions. Right. Uh, th- that has always been a mystery here. What was the president doing during that time? And, you know, you, one would also wonder, doesn't his son have any other way to reach him except going through the White House chief of staff? Right. Uh, it seems like the president had either cocooned himself or perhaps was, um, you know, try- being deliberately um, unresponsive. And that's what the committee's trying to figure out. And as you mentioned, it's interesting that Meadows turned a lot of these records over, uh, some of them that are obviously very um, negative in terms of their portrayal of the president as unresponsive and, and sort of uncaring about uh, what was happening at the Capitol. Uh, and it looked like Meadows was at least partially cooperating with the committee. And then he kind of abruptly cut things off about a week ago and said, no, um, now I'm going to stand behind President Trump's uh, uh, assertion of executive yeah. privilege, and I won't be giving any testimony. So that's where that dispute stands, and that's why we've ended up with this uh, vote on uh, uh, holding Meadows in contempt, possibly pushing him in the direction of a criminal contempt prosecution. Furthermore, what we see through these texts is just how much everybody was looking to President Trump to to stop this. You know, no, you didn't, nobody really said anything in the text, so like, oh, he's responsible, all that. But they knew that he uh, almost alone probably had the the possible power to stop it, to, to speak to the masses, to say something. That's why people were pleading with him. Right. And, and that is what is so damning, I think, about these text messages. Um, it's not that there is a response, it's that there wasn't a response, uh, or at least as you point out, for many hours, there was no response. I think it was only uh, uh, eventually the president did a slightly more assertive uh, video statement that was released. Uh, but basically, when most of the violence was taking place uh, on Capitol Hill, I think it was between about 2.30 and about 4.30 in the afternoon, uh, based on the hundreds of, of criminal cases I've also been uh, covering that are playing out over January 6th violence, uh, there was really very little forthcoming from the president. And there have been these reports that he was watching the scenes unfold on uh, cable television and that he was actually uh, happy about it. Uh, and, you know, obviously the only people that could tell us that would be the president himself and those who were in direct contact with him. And I don't think we have yet a clear public account from Meadows about um, their interactions on, on that day. You know, I was watching some of the debate over uh, holding Mark Meadows in contempt and uh, everything, you know, as as uh, as usual is kind of going along party lines. You know, Democrats are, are pushing this. Republicans are saying this is not the way to go. Uh, but it does show that the, the committee investigating this is pretty serious. I mean, they already did it with Steve Bannon. It looks like it's happening to Mark Meadows. But, uh, you know, these are kind of the actions they're left to resort to when they're refusing to, to cooperate. And as you mentioned, everybody's kind of hiding behind this executive privilege notion that former President Trump is trying to exercise. Right. I mean, I think one of the arguments that some of the Republicans are making is, look, you know, this contempt citation is somewhat counterproductive. I mean, basically what happened when they went this route with Bannon was that was sort of the end of the discussion. 
and it looks like they won't be getting any more information from Bannon. And you know, maybe he will be found guilty in months and months, or maybe the case will be thrown out, or maybe he'll be acquitted. Who knows? But it, it isn't the most productive route of actually getting information from that person who you hold in contempt. Um, the purpose of it, once you go the criminal route, is supposed to be punitive to punish them for ignoring the subpoena. There are other mechanisms you can use that are what, what they describe as coercive, which are intended to encourage you to make your life unpleasant in a way that you decide to uh, go along with the subpoena. And, you know, the House is not using those methods. Instead, they're looking at a criminal referral, and that ends up being more of a signal sent to other uh, witnesses who've been subpoenaed that they should cooperate then more than it tends to be a successful method of getting more information out of the specific witness involved. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, happy to do it. Here's a fun story about the metaverse. Many people expect it to be the next phase of the internet where our real lives increasingly mesh with our digital lives and companies are taking notice. Investors are already spending millions of dollars to buy up virtual real estate. While the internet may be infinite, virtual plots of land are not, and companies are buying up what they can in online worlds like Decentraland. For more on this virtual land boom, we'll speak to Deborah Carmen, contributor to the New York Times. There's definitely millions of dollars going in, and the idea is that even months from now, not even years from now, these millions of dollars are going to seem like real small change. A lot of these investors are saying, it's very much like as if you showed up in Manhattan 150 years ago and somebody offered you a piece of land in Soho and you would be a fool not to buy it because if you don't buy it right now, the value of it is going to skyrocket before you can even snap your fingers. The idea is that this is land that's extremely valuable and it's only going to get more valuable by the second. So one of the big questions I had with this, obviously the internet we know is pretty infinite. It just goes on and on. So with these virtual worlds, they could continue to be built upon, expanded upon. But in these certain areas where people are buying right now, uh, there's a couple of uh, platforms, Decentraland, Sandbox is another one. It's not actually infinite. There's only a finite amount of parcels, I guess you can call them, that they are selling. So how does that part of it work? Right. I mean, you nailed it. I, one of the things about understanding this concept of land in the metaverse is you have to understand it's both limitless, but also very much limited because it's how much these lands have been designed and they've already been divided into parcels. So there's this idea of location, 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 which applies just as much to digital real estate as it does to real estate in the real world. So if you have these virtual worlds, you have areas that have already started to be developed. You have these downtown cores and there's only so much of them. And the ones that are starting to be built up for fashion or for gaming or for commerce are already more valuable so that's where the value is skyrocketing the fastest, and that's where people are trying to get in with as much passion as they can right now and as much money as they can. Okay, so let's talk about some of the sales. Uh, for your article, you focused on a couple of the sales that were happening in uh, Decentraland. Before we did the story, I went onto the website to try to check it out, and you can make an avatar. It's a little cartoony looking, but the little city area, you know, you can go and actually do some shopping, different things like that. And all of this stuff is going to keep expanding, right? They're going to keep building it out. But tell us a little bit about Decentraland and then some of the big sales we saw coming up. So there's this company, Tokens.com, and they recently purchased a tower. And Well, they didn't purchase. They actually, quote unquote, broke ground, which really just means they started coding a tower 
in this area in the Centerland, which is what they hope is going to be their fashion district. Right now, if you think of the real world, if you think of a field that someone has decided they're going to build a town in, that's kind of what these areas look like. And as people are buying up digital real estate, these places are getting built up. So they have this vision that this fashion district eventually is going to have virtual headquarters where people are going to trade NFT versions of brands like Gucci and Burberry and all the other major fashion brands. And in their tower, they're hoping they're going to have a fashion mall where people will come shop and they hope they will stage fashion shows there. And as a result, they will be able to make a lot of money. But rather than it have dollars of commerce, it will be on the blockchain. It will just be a virtual version of everything we really know and understand right now in the real world. And that tower I was sold for about a million dollars. And they had an even larger acquisition a few weeks ago after that for $2.5 million, which at the time was a record. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear that. There was another one, uh, in, I guess in Sandbox is a different virtual world. Mm-hmm. There was a Republic Realm. They did a deal that was $4.3 million for a little piece of land. So, I mean, the money is there and the old real estate notion still works. Location, location, location. Absolutely. You know, they're building kind of this uh, downtown area, as you mentioned, for shopping and, and high luxury brands and all that stuff. But that's where the majority of the foot traffic, even for these digital avatars are going to be. So, they're banking on, hey, this is going to put millions of dollars into it right now. It'll be much more profitable for us later on. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to say, well, there's no way we're all going to live our lives in these virtual worlds. But the idea is we all kind of already do. We all walk around staring at our phones. We all are very much involved on social media all the time. This is just the next step. It's just one more little push into a more immersive version of a life that we're already living. And cryptocurrency is going to be a huge part of this. Obviously, you know, NFTs and crypto are kind of going hand in hand in a lot of ways. But let's say for Decentraland, right, they have their own currency on that platform. It's called Mana. But it's all tied into the cryptocurrency thing. That's why it's becoming such this, you know, you hear so many stories about crypto. You're hearing so many stories about NFTs. This is kind of where everything is eventually going to culminate. So crypto is going to be a, a huge part of this. Yeah, so crypto is definitely going to be a huge part of it. And all of the transactions that are happening in the metaverse are happening on the blockchain. What is a little bit tricky is every different virtual world that you go into has its own currency. So it's not like you have one type of cryptocurrency that you can go back and forth in between. It's its own type from metaverse to metaverse, but they're all pretty interchangeable. Yeah, the interesting thing is going to see what happens as more and more companies get into all of this. Obviously, we know Facebook changed their parent company name to reflect the metaverse things like that. Once they come on board, once all these other companies really start piling onto this, it's going to be interesting to see if people all go to one area to Decentraland or Sandbox or where everybody lands is going to be kind of interesting. But we're already seeing stuff happening there. You mentioned Justin Bieber concert that happened. This is happening in other places like Fortnite and Roblox and things like that. So very soon, very quickly, this does seem like it'll be the future. I think it already is the future. And the other big piece of this is that we all have just gone through a pandemic where we've all been stuck at home and living our lives online for 18 months, if not longer. And this is really, if it hadn't already started to happen before, we've now had this catalyst that's pushed us into it already. So we may not realize that we're already in this world and living it, but we really already are. When we look back in the future, we'll realize that it was already happening and the wheels were already spinning in motion. And if you bought that property early, you'll probably make a lot more later. Deborah came in, contributor to the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take care.
Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.